Our scripture passage comes from Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 32. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in purple cloak, and twisting together crowns of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the county, the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. We're in Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 16. We're going to look at the crucifixion there. We're specifically looking at the suffering of the Christ. Now, Acts chapter 13, verse 18 says this. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So whatever was according to the prophets, according about the suffering of the Christ, Jesus fulfilled throughout our study of Mark. We've said that phrase numerous times, almost every week, for I think it's, what, 50-something weeks or so, 49 weeks in our study of Mark. But honestly, I think I should interrupt myself and correct myself because I don't think the word study is actually the best word for what we're doing in these next couple moments. We are giving attention to the words of Mark as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we've asked for the Lord to teach us, to transform us. As our vision statement is to see the gospel of Jesus Christ inform and transform the whole of our lives. And the Spirit, as we've spent time in the gospel of Mark, has brought us up close to the life, the work, the teaching, and now in our passage today, the suffering of our Redeemer. And so perhaps instead of saying that we're going to study this text, perhaps we should say that through the Spirit, we are being drawn close to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. So the call this morning, I think, is this. Let us draw close to Jesus by his Spirit and his Word this morning. Our purpose is not to to study him. That would be too detached 
for what our business is this morning in worship. Our purpose is to draw close and truly see him, to see our Savior, particularly this morning in his suffering, that he's mocked. And that ought to to cause in us some sort of passion, some sort of full engagement of what the Scriptures would call us to, right? Our heart, soul, yes, mind, and our strength. That there is a, a labor to go on with the whole of ourselves to engage the Lord as he is presented before us as the one who suffered the penalty of our sin, that you and I might be free. So let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would draw us close to you, that you'd help us to see you as as the Gospel of Mark has so repeatedly been so helpful to us to let us draw close to this this Redeemer, this Jesus, to watch you and to know you. and to Lord, I pray that you would do that for us today, that you would come close to us as we come close to your word. Lord, I pray that we would leave not only knowing something that happened, but we would know that, that you have worked in your people this morning and that you have caused us to love you Love the one who has loved us first. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's begin at verse 16 together. Verse 16 of Mark chapter 15 says, And the Lord and the soldiers led him, that is Jesus, away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. Now Jesus has been tried in a mock trial. He's been mistreated and had a variety of accusations that didn't stand up before two witnesses. There were conflicting accounts. And then he went through this trial before Pilate. That wasn't a trial. It was just a bunch of political maneuvering. And here he is now handed over to the soldiers to be prepared for his execution. And the first thing that we see as he's being prepared there is he's not so much being prepared for execution as much as he is being mocked. Now, the Roman church to whom Mark writes were experiencing serious social and physical persecution. The ones who originally received this letter from Mark, these 16 chapters as we have it, were experiencing persecution themselves in Rome. In our our passage, Mark helps them by helping them to identify with the sufferings of Jesus. They see the Lord in whose name they suffer suffer himself so that they might bear his name. Do you see this? The Lord gives to them his name. He adopts them as his people, and they suffer with him as such. So let's consider his suffering. Verses 16 through 20. It begins with soldiers, a battalion. That's 600 men. Jesus' public shaming begins before they even strap the beam on his back. He's brought into this public area of 600 soldiers, 1,200 eyes on him, 600 voices mocking him. He's being made a spectacle, an object of derision by the soldiers. I want to, again, we're we're being called in close. I I love Mark. He's He's not belaboring the point. But when he says these things, he says them in such clear, common language that invites sort of a vividness to our imagination. 
Sometimes the best writing isn't a, a long description. The best writing is a clear, short description. What we have here is a battalion of soldiers all gathered for the purpose of shaming Jesus. 600 faces engaging their creative wit. 600 young men, all creative and imaginative, to discover novel ways to humiliate Jesus. Verses 17 and 18. Here's what they came up with. They clothed him with a purple cloak, twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews, a purple cloak, a crown of thorns, and a salute. Jesus is dressed as a sort of mock Caesar in mock royalty with this purple cloak, a, a victorious Roman commander. Jesus is adorned, but he's not adored. He's a mockery. And they begin in verse 19 then to to spit on him. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and, and then kneeling down in homage to him. They pretend to submit themselves to their Lord, but proceed to strike him and spit upon him. I'm reminded that there will be a day that comes when every knee will bow. They bowed before him, but there was no worship. That day will come. They mocked him, verse 20 says. They stripped him. They let him out, stripping him of his robe, putting back on his original clothes that they'll later cast lots for. Finally, the time for the soldier's fun is over. They've had their fun. They've beaten and mocked Jesus. And now he's being prepared for his cross. Jesus' rejection is thorough as Mark presents him. Jesus has suffered rejection and derision at every point in, in the gospel of Mark. He's suffered as the disciples run in fear and then in outright denial of Jesus with Peter in the courtyard. The religious leaders cling to power rather than genuinely considering the claims of the Christ. Jesus offered up serious claims, serious arguments. They didn't do business with that. They'd simply cling to power. Pilate coldly calculates his treatment of Jesus based not upon justice, which was his job, but upon how well it will affect his reputation among the other leaders and the subjects of his realm. And the crowd is whipped up by political manipulation. And here the soldiers toy with Jesus for sport. Mark is clearly presenting for us in a matter of just two chapters or so here. Mark is presenting Jesus as completely rejected and abandoned. What we see here must be one of the most upside-down tragedies in the world. In all of world history, the one true king of the universe, the creator of all things, is dressed in a twisted costume of human majesty. Who are they trying to make Jesus look like to make him look great? They're trying to make him look like Caesar, the great one, right? dressing the king of the universe in Caesar's robes and then subjecting him to the most profound human cruelty. Human majesty, human cruelty, all on display in the rejection of Jesus. And yet in these soldiers, they're simply participating in a social trajectory of the moment. 
I look at these soldiers and I think, of course they did that. This makes complete sense. Jesus has been betrayed. He's been denied. He's been rejected. He's been condemned by everyone else around him. And the soldiers simply join in the theme, and they do so with a sport that's akin to their own character and station. They simply play along with the rest of the story. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says this, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Let's just say for a second, after all of this, Pilate says, you know what, I can't kill him. It's not just, just let him go. And, and people know everything that's happened to Jesus up to this point. You don't look that dude in the eye, do you? You're ashamed of that mockery of a human being. And you hide your face and you don't esteem him. You just know, you know how low he is because of how low he has been treated. He has been despised and rejected by men, despised and we esteemed him not. If the church in Rome, to whom Mark originally wrote this, or any body of believers since, experiencing rejecting and persecution of any kind, one of the things that we can do in this text is we can draw close to Jesus' humiliation and know that while the world may strike and mock the flesh, that's what the flesh does. It dresses up in mock flattery and it beats down in the flesh. Jesus has gone to the depths of suffering and endured the deepest shame and rejection. You can't go lower than Jesus has gone. There's no suffering that we will endure in which the Lord will not say, I will meet you there. That's encouragement for a church that's suffering in Rome. And I think that one of the reasons why, as, as we look at passages like this, we can do so, simply read it, you know, for morning devotion, and say, thank you, Jesus, for your gospel and stuff, and then kind of move on in a detached fashion, maybe sing a hymn that we don't pay attention to, is because we just don't understand the reality of suffering. We've sort of built this image of, of, of safety in our own minds, in our own social setting, and perhaps even participated in, in some of the, the hiding and despising and shame. Verse 20, at the end of the verse, it says this, and they led him out to crucify him. We move to the road to the cross. Verse 21 says this, And the, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now this is a curious verse. This verse is curious. Simon of Cyrene, Cyrene in northern Africa, a city that's founded by the Greeks, but is in northern Africa, surrounded by the culture's there and Simon, a Jew of the dispersion, winds up back in Jerusalem, probably for the Passover, and he's there with Rufus and Alexander. Why in the world do we have these names? 
Now, we, it makes sense that we would have what is recorded for us. This verse gives us a glimpse of the severity of Jesus' physical suffering. His suffering was so severe that he could not carry the cross to the place of his execution, as was the normal practice. He'd been so severely beaten and throughout a night in which he'd had no rest. We've, we've pretty much accounted for every single hour up to this point, 9 a.m., as the passage tells us later, in the third hour of the day, he crumples under the weight of the cross. But Mark gives us more information than that. He doesn't simply say he crumpled under the cross and another man carried the cross. Mark gives us more information. He gives us a name, three names, Simon, Rufus, and Alexander. It seems likely in the giving of these three names with little other explanation that the original recipients of Mark the church in Rome would be familiar with these names, that they would be counted not only among the believers, but perhaps even among the leaders of a growing church just a few decades after Jesus fell under the weight of that cross. Now, in my quoting of the following two verses, I admit there is a good deal of speculation. I remember walking our way through the book of Acts and coming to Acts chapter 13 uh, in our study there. There is a bit of speculation here, but I, I think it's helpful to consider how the Spirit is weaving together his church. Romans 16, verse 13 says this, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Rufus is what is written to the church in Rome. Is Rufus here presented as chosen for service, the very son of the man who would carry the cross to Jesus' execution for him? Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Is Simeon, with his dark skin as he is called there, the one who carried the cross? The Cyrenian from the north of Africa? Is Lucius another friend or relative from Cyrene? Jesus, with Simon carrying his cross, arrives at Golgotha, the place of execution just outside of the city. And I think there's a convincing argument here that, that Mark is specifically encouraging the church in Rome. This is your history. This is a part of your beginning. What we're watching in this passage is your church. I think that story can weave its way even as the gospel of Mark has come to us today. This is not some far-off distant history. This is our history. These are those whom the Lord has called to his service to bring his gospel to our ears that we might be counted among those who bear the name. And when Jesus gets to the place of his crucifixion, he's nailed to a cross. One of the interesting details about Mark is the details that are missing we're not told in horrifying detail what it sounded like for the nails to enter the flesh. We're not told actually a great deal about the physical suffering. The focus of the Gospel of Mark is upon the mockery. 
One note about the physical suffering is actually in verse 23. In verse 23, it says, And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. There are numerous indications sprinkled throughout the four gospel accounts that there were various sympathizers of Jesus scattered about the crowd witnessing the crucifixion. And perhaps it was one of these sympathizers who offered Jesus a relief according to this proverb. Proverbs 31, verse 6. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Jesus is offered pain relief. Something to get him through the next few hours. And Jesus rejects it. Jesus wants to and does remain perfectly in control all the way through suffering and death. That's not to say that he didn't suffer. It's to say exactly the opposite. That he did to the fullest extent with no relief. He endured the cross. Kent Hughes writes this, his pain was alleviated by nothing. If anything, it was heightened by his soul's health. One of the things that I appreciate thinking about Jesus is that he is the perfect man. Like he's, he's the full human. Body, soul, mind, all of his strength. Everything about Jesus was was everything that a human is supposed to be, alive in his flesh, alive in his soul. And he was crucified, fully aware of that suffering. He suffered to the uttermost. It was he who suffered to the uttermost who was able to save to the uttermost. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is Jesus' intercession for the redeemed? What is his prayer on, before the throne? His prayer is, I've suffered in their place to the uttermost. There is therefore now, given my absolute and full suffering, there is therefore now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do we respond? How do we respond to that? Jesus has filled up all of the suffering in our place. I think we should respond with one of my favorite hymns, My Jesus, I Love Thee. I love thee because thou hast first loved me. You purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. And if ever I love thee, my Jesus, it is now. In light of Mark chapter 15, the Lord is great in glory and majestic in splendor, worthy of all worship. We do well to adore the majesty and glory of our God, but it is in his suffering that our affection ought to be the most engaged. We are right to fill up so much of our songs to recall the cross of our Savior. It's there that he has gone to the uttermost for us. This ought to engage our passion, the crucifixion. And that's what we consider Verse 25, 
Verse 25, and it was the third hour, about 9 a.m., when they crucified him. Consider how Mark presents the crucifixion. A brisk movement through this description. His focus isn't on that physical pain as much as the rejection and the, the mocking. The crucifixion isn't as, as only physical. It's also verbal. Uh, executioners seek not only to destroy the body, but also to destroy the man, to destroy the person, to bring him low. And he was brought low for us. They continue this humiliation by stripping Jesus of his clothing. Verse 24, they crucified him, divided his garments among them, casting for them to decide what each should take. Psalm 22, it speaks of his humiliation. Verse 18 of Psalm 22, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is the king of the Jews, right? Verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him, the king of the Jews. Pilate appears to be mocking not only Jesus with that inscription, but also the leaders who used Pilate to crucify Jesus, though he was clearly innocent, and yet Pilate, an unjust judge, crucifies him nonetheless, and it's as though Pilate's asserting his own power in this accusation. This is what happens to a subject of Rome that steps out of line. Yes, I'll kill Jesus because I can, just to keep my own reputation, and all the rest of you had better keep in line. We know from the other Gospels that the leader's of the people didn't like that inscription and what it seemed to accuse. Pilate's inscription is one of the most true statements about Jesus in the whole episode, right? As we've considered in recent weeks, Jesus is the king. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, the Magi seek the birth of Jesus because they seek the birth of the king. They say, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. This is at the beginning of the incarnation of Jesus. And then if we go all the way to the end, Revelation, verse 19, verse 16. Chapter 19, verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. What's that name? King of kings. Lord of lords. He's not only king of the Jews. He is the king of of kings. This will remain forever the name that's written upon our Redeemer. It is the right inscription. Last week, Mark Schladorn preached on Psalm 22. Mark's record of the crucifixion walks lockstep with that psalm, Psalm 22. Verse 1, in the coming verses, Mark will be, uh, Jesus will be mocked as one who is beyond rescue despite his claim to be Messiah. Verses 29 through 32. Those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha! I gotcha. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. The chief priests and the scribes, they mocked him. He saved others. He can't save himself. That the king... Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe, they mock. 
The mockers claim that Jesus' failure to spring off the cross is evidence that he's no Messiah. He's no fulfillment of any of the prophecies. But Psalm 22 begs differently, doesn't it? Psalm 22 tells a different story. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus himself quotes from the cross. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? It says, as Jesus cries out on the cross that he shows himself to be the Messiah of the prophets. It's in his suffering that he demonstrates, I am the Messiah. Psalm 22, verse 7. Mockery is a constant theme of the crucifixion. All those who mock me, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. You can tell that Mark is self-conscious of Psalm 22 as he records the gospel for us. Jesus not only suffered the punishment of the guilty verdict in our place, not only did he suffer the the pain of death, Jesus suffered the shame of our sin. He was mocked so that he would be ashamed, so that we would be ashamed no more. Consider this. We, We tend to talk about the death of Christ in the place of sinners. And when we talk about the death of Christ in the place of sinners, we we tend to think about a a replacement, someone going in our place in a courtroom for our guilt. We should have received the guilty verdict. He received the guilty verdict in our place. But there's this thing that remains, isn't there? Shame. Because now we're not only guilty of our sin, but then he took it, but now we're guilty of an innocent man's death. Well, how's that supposed to make you feel? Well, surely what will be true is one of these days when he finally gets his hands on us. We're gonna be dragged around the courts of heaven, stripped naked to reveal our shame, right? Isn't that so often how we feel about our sin? No. No, in in the presentation of the gospel, according to the gospel of Mark, we're told of one who not only died in our place, some sort of antiseptic dismissal of guilt. Now we're told of one who was mocked in our place. There is a scrubbing of the stain of sin to remove not only our guilt, but also our shame. So that when we meet him, he won't say, aha, now I got you, and parade us around heaven. We will be paraded around heaven clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Friends, the Lord has removed our guilt and our shame. The response of the people was to divide the garments among them, casting lots, making a mockery of the one who redeemed us. Down to the smallest detail, Jesus is the Messiah of the prophets. He is the one who suffers completely, perfectly and sufficiently, for those he came to save. Jesus is surrounded by scoffers. Left and right are those who deserve to die for their crimes, and yet they mock the only innocent man on the entire hill. Why does Jesus, the king of creation, remain on the cross? Why does he stay there? You know he doesn't have to. If he is the Messiah, he could take up their mockery and shame them into belief. Lewis Bailey, the 17th century devotional 
author of the, a book called Practice of Piety. He, he offers this dialogue between the soul and Christ. And in one part of the dialogue, the soul says, Lord, why wouldst thou be taken when thou mightst have escaped thine enemies? Christ, that thy spiritual enemies should not take thee and cast thee into the prison of utter darkness. There's therefore now no condemnation, nothing that remains for those who are in Christ. I hope you're beginning to see as we draw near to Jesus in his suffering that while it's true that Jesus died in the place of sinners, this is true, bedrock of our faith. The account before us demands a fuller appreciation of Jesus that has suffered in our place. Jesus has made atonement for sin at every fine point. There's no sanitary execution, no technical administration of justice. This isn't an electric chair. This isn't a sanitary execution. This is the deepest of suffering to leave no stain not atoned for. Jesus suffered to the uttermost that we might be saved to the uttermost. There's no aspect of our guilt, no shade of our shame that has not been accounted for by the suffering of the Redeemer. As we come to the end of this section of Mark, before we consider Jesus' death next week, there are two things that I think we ought to see as we draw close to the suffering of Jesus. The first is this, when the church faces suffering, when the body, when the believers together face suffering for the sake of Christ, we can identify with the suffering of Jesus. There are over 80 uses of just the word suffering. I didn't even mess around with looking at other words that are used in its place like persecution. Over 80 uses of the word suffering in the New Testament. Most of those uses refer to the suffering of believers. And many of those verses connect the suffering of the believers to the suffering of Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner who suffers like him, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Our suffering is no cause for shame, but it's to be endured by the power of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Here's a funny thing about godliness. Godliness has the odd quality of being both wise and reviled by the world. I mean, you consider any godly behavior and you think about it for a couple seconds and you think, it's actually a good idea. It's winsome. It's beautiful. There's something right about godly. Imagine if the whole world lived godly lives. That's the utopia we're looking for. It would be beautiful. And yet, godliness has this odd quality of being wise if you think about it for a moment and reviled by the flesh. You see, the ways of the Lord are perfect, 
His ways are just and mature, and they're faithful, and they're good, and yet it is the way of the, wor- of the Lord that the world hates because it's not from the world, it's from the Lord. We love to revel in our own glory and our own pride and our own freedom to sin rather than bondage to the good way of the Lord. We ought not to be surprised, therefore, by persecution. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Don't be surprised when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Ours is a theology of the cross. Ours is a way of following after the way of this Christ. It's not strange, therefore, that we would suffer. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Such an odd phrase. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Granted, the Spirit speaks of suffering for the sake of Christ as a gift. This is something that the Lord has prepared for you, that you might share in him and all that is in him. Romans 8 16 through 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What's that talking about? We're children of God, both in suffering and glory. He who carries us through suffering will carry us to glory. We shouldn't find suffering something odd or strange in this world. I think that's one of the the primary purposes of Mark in writing this passage and recording this gospel for the church in Rome, that they would recognize that it's by this suffering that the Lord has ransomed many. Even from the church in Rome, many to himself. Even though they suffer, they've been ransomed for himself. So I get it. We can identify with Jesus in his suffering when we suffer. But when I remember my own sin, not the sin of others in in, in bringing persecution upon me or upon the church, what am I supposed to do when I remember my own sin in light of Jesus' suffering? How am I supposed to respond in the prayer of confession? After all this talking of suffering, one might think our response should be at least a little note of guilt, some note of shame. I can't believe if I hadn't sinned, he wouldn't have had to die. What's wrong with me? Especially if we find it easy to call sin to mind. We ought to feel at, during the, the prayer of confession as we remember that it is It's almost a euphemism to say that we've fallen short of the glory of God. Have you ever prayed that? God, I'm sorry I've fallen short of your glory. It doesn't even, it's it's a euphemism. It it, it falls short of what I I should be confessing. I haven't fallen short of his glory. I can't even see his glory from the pit I'm in right now. Our sin appears so close. Our shame appears so deep. But for all the things that the Holy Spirit records for us in the gospel, there is no hint that Jesus begrudges sinners. Consider. Gain strength 
gaining strength from the will of the Father. Jesus considers the cross that he will endure. And gaining comfort from the Spirit, Jesus sets his face to the cross. Not in spite of sinners. Not begrudging what he has to do for you. But because of redemption. Because he has set his sight on the redemption of a people for himself. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He despised the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is the shame of the cross? The shame of the cross is our sin. And Jesus secures and perfects our faith by scorning and despising our sin. In the end, it's not Jesus who was despised and rejected. It's not we who were despised or rejected. It's sin that was despised and rejected and put to shame and put away so that we might be clothed in righteousness. Our sin is no more. With the defeat of our sin, so too is the defeat of our guilt and our shame. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. We whose sin put him to open shame, he is not ashamed to call us his. We're blood relatives, fellow heirs with Jesus. Just a little bit later in verse 13 of Hebrews 2, he says, Behold, I and the children God has given me. That's the parade of heaven. These are my people. Those people who were praying that prayer of confession, they were bold to do so because they knew I took their guilt and shame. And they're bold to come forward and pretend like somehow there's some communion between those people and me because of my body, my blood that was broken and shed for them. So when we remember our guilt and our shame, we must remember that Jesus has perfectly taken our place. And so with our heart, our soul, and our mind, and our strength, we draw near to the suffering of the Christ. Again, I love thee because thou hast first loved me. You've purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus. If ever. It's right here. Right here in your perfect performance of good news for me. Heavenly Father, we, we are in desperate need for help. 
You know that. The whole, the whole story of this whole book, not just Mark, but the whole thing, is a story of people who need help. But we get so stuck on this particular point that, yes, our guilt is paid for, but some shame remains. That causes us to try and hide in the crowd or pretend it's not so bad, to perform to make up for some level of shame that remains. Lord, I pray that we would see that our shame has already been paraded in the light. Not born by us, but born by you. You have truly taken our shame. We can't be outed any more than we already have been. 600 soldiers saw our shame. A whole crowd on a hill saw our shame. And you've taken it far away and outside of the city. So we will do business with it no more but to go to you. Lord, I pray that you would enable your church, your people, those who you would call to confess their guilt and shame today, cling to you for grace and forgiveness this morning for the first time, and those who have known you for a long time and have known your grace. Lord, I pray that even in these, all of these, you would bring redemption to the other, uttermost. God, we trust you for, for what is beautiful and what is good and for the song that can rise up from this place, from this assurance. Jesus is mine. Guilt isn't mine. Shame isn't mine. Jesus is mine. Thank you, Lord. We pray that this would, would not only inform our knowledge of the gospel, but would transform our way together in this world that we can be with boldness follow after godliness. You've clothed us and you're sanctifying us by your word and spirit and the foundation of your gospel work. Change your church. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.